Hello and welcome to the Hacked Off Podcast. In today's episode, I've got Michael with me. Michael, who on earth are you? Hi, I'm Michael. I'm a security consultant at Sakama and I mostly do the VISM and CSMA lines. So I wanted to bring Michael onto the podcast today uh, for a, a recent rant, a recent discussion that Michael and I had had around security policies. And anytime we, we talk about anything uh, interesting or funny about security, I think, right, let's get that person on the podcast. What I want to talk about today is Michael and I have been working with some customers recently to, to do things like a policy review. And I think this is one of the uh, areas of security that is often just like looked down upon. It's it's never given the attention it deserves. Sometimes a huge amount of effort it goes into writing the policies and then they're never reviewed. The policies rarely look like what the company, the actual practices look like, all kinds of things. But policies are often looked down upon but are really important to security so um i guess michael let's start with um policy review is that the most fun part of your job well i don't think anyone really told me when i got into pen testing just um how much of the hacker lifestyle is actually spent within microsoft word yeah that's true it's like uh you get to hack the things and that bit's awesome and then you've got to write it down and that bit's less awesome well, documentation is always the best bit of any job, right? And uh, with policies, you're basically reviewing the received wisdom that is the ideal world set out neatly in Microsoft Word with incomplete sentences and poor grammar. <laughs> I think that's that's the big thing that, that I see. And it's one of the first things that when I'm kind of teaching people my, my method of doing policy review, it's like, watch out for just sections of the policy that are incoherent and sentences that just end partway through. I think one of the big things is companies um, write policies and then don't necessarily review them. So that leads to policies kind of you know, getting a little bit messy or, or having mistakes and then that are very basic that are, that are never picked up. But let, let's start at the very beginning. What in your policy, Michael, I'm putting you on the spot here, what in your opinion is the purpose of a policy? So I think this is something which a lot of uh, security consultants generally miss and especially internal security teams is that you'll often receive a policy and it's just handed down to you from on high and maybe you've had the privilege to write some of it but the purpose of the policy is just to help an organization achieve its goals right there's nothing more than that if it's got regulators if it's got laws it has to comply with most companies will have laws they have to comply with right <laughs> then the policy is going to set out ways that you achieve that whether it's keeping all of your log data for seven years or making sure that if you get hacked, you could actually say, oh, they did log in and where. So it just sets out ways in which you'll achieve these wider goals. And it's something that a lot of security teams seems to just receive, but feel like they have no power over. And then they set about implementing this stuff they've been passed down. I think um, when it comes to policies, there's there's two words that I see them written. And I think as we as we go through this discussion, we'll maybe find out that I don't agree with either of these two words. But I either see policies being just the rules. So you must do this. You must do that. You cannot do this. And it is just the uh, the effectively almost like regulation for the organization, summarizing those compliance and regulatory requirements or the risk appetite that the organization's put down. And it's nothing but a list, very often an actual list uh, of rules. 
And the the other side that I see for policies, uh, again, I disagree with both of these. Uh, the other side is the kind of gold standard where the policy is an aspirational document where oh, we we aim to achieve these two things. And I, I'll summarize what I what I think the the problem is with with those two approaches. We'll get into more detail as we go through. But in short, as an organization scales, you know, scale leads to complexity, and very often. It isn't possible to write one set of rules for the entire organization that everybody in all instances can follow. Mm. So if you have a set of rules that don't allow for any exceptions under any circumstances, somebody is breaking those rules and they're just not telling you. And if you have a list of aspirations, people are likely regularly breaking those rules and not telling you. Where you know the, the difference between those two things is, is probably really just cultural. I think one of the things that we, we have to bear in mind, however the organization is laid out, be it functionally, we have departments, or be it uh, wrapped around projects, um, it's very difficult to kind of compress the entire complexity of an organization into a single document that has a list of rules. So exceptions are going to happen. And you should have some mechanism for, for documenting those exceptions to see if they are still relevant, which team it is who requires that exception and who it was that, that approved it. There is a, a third type of policy as well. The um, we're we're entering a tender, and we're required to present a policy, or our new suppliers asked us for one. Oh yeah. And again, that kind of falls under the aspirational category, where the relationship between policy and actually implemented security steps is mostly theoretical. This this is the the game you play where you try and guess what the policy is supposed to include, based on its title where how you how you like form and organize your policies is entirely up to you as an organization we can we can give some examples as we go through but um whether you break your policies down quite granularly so you have a firewall rule-based policy a password policy a um, end user agreement and you break it down kind of into pieces that that's fine if that works for you then that's fine or if you have these huge overarching documents like you just have one information security policy and it contains all of the chapters that that's fine either way is fine by me you know we're not here to tell you how to run your business we're just here to help review the documentation that you have and see how realistic it is um but one of the difficulties is where you get a like a supplier questionnaire or something like that and it just says oh please send over the the following eight policies most of them are really easy top one information security policy easy no problem there i'll get that to you and then as you go down the the policies either become less relevant or more vague. So uh, I got asked for a um, supervisory policy recently. Mm. Uh, I'll admit on this podcast, I have no idea what's supposed to go in one of those. I've never read one before, certainly never produced one. I, I imagine in some industry, that is a, a specific kind. I did the only sensible thing when you come up to a, a problem like this and you, you work in IT. Um, I Googled it. It seemed to be something to do with healthcare, but as to how it was relevant to our security department, I have no idea. I think people just, uh, there's this idea that there's just a whole tranche of documents that for whatever reason, someone once asked for. And so from now until the end of time, we must continue to ask for everything. Even though, as you say, like there's some information security policies I've seen lately where they're all just in one document. And so you end up cutting and pasting paragraphs and sort of playing playing with a print stick as you assemble a new set of policies just to appease whatever upload form requires separate docxes for all of these, which generally should just be a clause in another policy, right? Or even like a couple of pages. It doesn't need to be its own document with its own boilerplate. 
or it maybe does you know this is the big thing because like as as i alluded to a second ago the way that you structure your policies in my opinion um it it, it differs depending on, on the organization, right? Is the organization separated by function? Do you have a HR department, an IT department, an engineering department, or are you separated around projects where there is you know, a HR representative per project, a marketing representative per project? That, those are two fundamentally different ways of building businesses. And you know, I'm not here to tell you one is uh, better than the other, but I am here to tell you that you know, the, the way that you would document those things is different. If you have a, a very small company, if you're a startup, a scale-up, or, or just growing, maybe it is sensible to have just one information security policy because there's not that much to your organization in terms of complexity at that scale. But if you look at a, a tier one bank or someone as a stereotype of being a huge, complex, and security-restricted organization, you're probably going to have an awful lot of documents that are separate, you know, isolated documents um, that in themselves have an awful lot of complexity. So expecting suppliers to just have the same list of policy documents that you have in the exact same structure is probably a flawed approach. I tell you, in terms of um, supplier questionnaires, since we've since we've brought it up, I also had a <laughs> a recent uh, issue talking to talking to an organisation through a supplier questionnaire, where um, the questionnaire they had been given had um, all of these very simple questions, and I mean simple to the point of like. It doesn't allow for the complexity of real life, but they had to answer effectively yes or no to all of these questions. And it's the kinds of things that you would expect when we look at security reviews or, or, or architecture um, to, to consider. So the questions were things like, uh, do you have antivirus? Yes, no. Do you have a firewall? Yes, no. Do you have network segmentation? Do you have data loss prevention? Uh, and it was all of these, effectively just a list of technologies that exist with information security and you have to answer yes or no. And then the way that this organization had formulated their supplier questionnaire you had to get so many yeses to be allowed to work for them it was like almost points <laughs> in a multi-choice question you must score 70 out of 100 or you're too big a risk for us and the difficulty that i had with the customer helping them through the supplier security questionnaire was these questions did not make sense to their technology um do all of your servers have antivirus installed uh their architecture is serverless so is that a yes or a no Technically, all of our servers do have antivirus because we don't have any servers, but also no, because we don't have any servers. It's one of those ones, though, where you go back to the person who's handed you that form and you say, well, you know, actually, we're technically this would be Azure Fabric or this is part of Amazon's domain. This isn't ours. You know, we assume that they're running antivirus. It says so on the site if you, if you have a look, but we can only take their word for it. And the person who handed you the form goes, well, I don't know. You just have to fill it in. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. I like even in that context, it's like, no, there isn't antivirus because it's it's code as a service. Effectively, it's compute as a service. It's like just in that context doesn't make any sense to even ask that question. But if there's no flexibility there, then it's very difficult to get through that. And I think that problem applies, you know, broadly to security policies. Right? It's what we we're talking about earlier. If you try and write one document that applies to all of the complexity of your organization, you're never going to achieve that. There are going to be exceptions um yeah really common example of an exception that that we see is uh where organizations um ban certain characters from passwords i always love the history of these things when they come up because you know something went wrong somewhere so you'll have a password policy 
we talk about password policies in a second because there's some of the worst that we see. <laughs> but it'll say something like, uh, your password must have a minimum of eight characters, must include uppercase, must include lowercase, and under no circumstances can it include an emoji. And it's like you just know that somebody put an emoji in a password and then something somewhere blew up. Just ASCII only underlined in red. And the only special symbols you're allowed are the exclamation mark, which is probably yeah. more used than like the number one at this point. I mean, hold on. Hold on to that thought of ASCII only. We'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. But this is the example of the exception here is, um, you know, if you have a hundred different applications and one of them has a really bad time, if you give it an emoji. You shouldn't drag your whole organization down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just like something sets on fire somewhere. Um, uh, having a blanket policy that you cannot do that uh, because because of this edge case isn't necessarily the best approach so so again opinion this is one of those things with documents like this you know uh, reasonable adults will disagree i would have uh, a policy that applies to most of the organization and then a documented exception and the reason that i i think the documented exception is important is because it brings in the context so one of the things that is important is if you are defining a exception for what system and for why? The reason being, at some point, that system may be decommissioned. And if that system is decommissioned and nobody knows the join between the policy and the system, you will forevermore as an organization have a policy that bans emojis because something somewhere went wrong, but nobody really remembers what it was. But if you have a policy and an exceptions document that states why that was the case and under what circumstances that is a problem, you can review that appropriately. I think that's definitely a spectre that haunts IT. You know, I think most people have been in a position in the job where they've said, well, why is that service still online? You know, why do we still have mm. to do this? And they basically say, well, you, things work if we keep doing that. It's a magic rune and we must keep applying it because stuff doesn't break and production doesn't get interrupted when we don't do this. And it's just with an exception policy, you do actually get to challenge that. You, you did mention there as well. Um policy statements that that have uh, certain definitions in them and i'm not saying that all mm. policies should be written in simple english it's completely fine for uh, a, a context specific policy to use context context specific terminology uh, but the password policy is a good go-to example again we're going to bully password policies throughout this podcast <laughs> because that is a policy that probably is read by by many people right um especially if you're you're saying to all staff members you must follow this policy at, at all times if that policy says things like you may only use ascii how many people reading it know what that means i think it, that kind of feeds into this wider thing though of like i've, I've read policies recently um sort of as i've joined companies as i've uh, worked with companies as well. I've been reading their security policies, and there's this assumption that you know, if you're in security, you'll be good at security. And I've read through these policies, and they've always been indecipherable at places. And it does make you wonder, you know, ostensibly everyone in this company has read this policy. So a grammar's notwithstanding, but the, the main, well, atrociously butchering my own grammar there, but we'll ignore that. But the B side to this is this policy should be readily understandable by anyone in the organisation, and it shouldn't be verging into legalese. Yeah, yeah. Where you've got too many connectives in one sentence explaining exactly what systems you're allowed to log in without authenticating by MFA. Yeah, I think um, it is completely fair where a policy is referring to a regulatory requirement to do things like quote that regulatory requirement or somehow reference it. I'm not going to... I'm not going to get into the weeds of how legal documents should be written. Uh, but what I do see a lot is is what Michael points out there of 
um, policies that are in no way those kinds of documents being written as if they are, but mm-hmm. not written by people who have studied law, practitioners of law, lawyers, written by people who are, oh, I'm writing a policy, I need to sound like a lawyer. And that is the worst thing where just like every other sentence is, including, but not limited to the following. It's one of those things where I've seen a successful IT uh, explanation is one that your mum would understand, you know, and yeah, not not to be sort of ageist or anything like that, but you you got people who aren't necessarily technical literate. Like I, I've got friends and I've like I've team viewed into friends' machines, you know, and I've been helping them install stuff, and I've gone well, you know, just open my documents and everyone what, I'm like you know the file icon on your desktop, like <laughs> could you point out which which is a desktop to me? Yeah, people generally computers are magical these days. They do it for you. And when you're explaining stuff in your policies that is hyper detailed, you know, your front of house staff will have to be doing this. Everyone in your organization will have to be doing this. And then you, this assumption that they'll all maybe even know if they're on Windows without having to think about it. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's fine as well. I, I think, you know, some people listening to this, they'll get their their pedant hat on and they'll say, oh, but how do I write, you know, our encryption policy in plain English? It's like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the policies that are broadly consumed by the organization should be broadly consumable. Although I, I do think um, obviously everyone should settle down in an evening and read through an encryption policy once or twice because it's a tough it's a close race between them and password construction standards, right? <laughs> yeah, I have uh, chronic insomnia, so so doing that kind of thing sounds like a wonderful idea to, to help solve that problem. Um, we mentioned earlier, though, um, sentences that end partway through and incoherent paragraphs within policies. I guess this leads us on to policies should be reviewed at some point. And it's so, whenever I'm doing a policy review with companies, it's so obvious if a document is like several years old and has just never been read since the day it was drafted. Um, sometimes because it is literally written, draft 1997. I saw that on a business continuity um, plan recently. That was wonderful. Uh, BCP, that was over 10 years old. Reviewed annually as well, I'm guessing. <laughs> oh, I mean, it, it, it said it was, but... Um, yeah, that's one of the things that stands out to me, you know, doing this kind of consultancy approach with an organization, working them through either something like a maturity assessment or if they're if they're building their organization that they're scaling, you know, doing that kind of awkward phase of going from 50 to 100 employees, that kind of company adolescence thing where there's some some uh, stretch marks. Um, it's very, very common that we review these policies and we just like nobody has ever read this. One of my one of the ones I like is um, any policy that refers to you know, what staff should be doing in the event of a security incident, that kind of thing. The policies that organizations write where it says like how to handle phishing emails and those kinds of things, because those are um, critical documents to businesses and widely consumed. You know, everybody in the organization should be reading those and should be familiar with what their required actions are in the event of receiving a phishing email or any other kind of, um, you know, low level incident like that. (laughs) Sometimes when you read these documents, you're just like, this is incoherent. Has anyone ever flagged this? And then they're like, no. And it's like, do you have any evidence that anyone's ever actually read this document? And then they'll have that kind of like security training thing of just like, well, everybody attended this security awareness training or everybody signed to say they had read it. <laughs> I mean, that kind of feeds into the wider thing that like some of these documents, uh, this is why I'm a real fan of the plain English approach because some of these documents, they're going to be read in a panic. Or they, they're going to be read quickly by someone who just needs to get an action done. And it's like with the yeah. wider BCPs and incident response plans, you, you're not going to have a, a calm, sane, logical head when you're reading these. So the plainer the language, the easier everyone's time is. 
Yeah, I don't want to get too much into like the the distinctions because we're talking about security policies and getting yeah. getting too much into the weeds of like uh, business continuity plans because because they are distinct from security policies. But the one thing I did want to bring up on that is uh, in the in the idea of reviewing these documents is um, you know t- testing them, see see if they actually work. <laughs> A really good example being an organization that I worked with where their incident response uh, plan said uh, it opened first line of the document was effectively. Um, you know, uh, these steps to be followed in the event of a, a major incident for the organization that significantly disrupts uh, business operations. And um, the the problem with that, if that isn't immediately obvious to you, is what if you've, you know, one machine has a malware infection or a user has received a phishing email? There's no triage within that sentence. There's no, you know... Mm-hmm. Um, what happened, how significant is it, you know, how do we handle minor incidents, how do we handle kind of business as usual um, disruption that occurs, it's just like, read this document in the event of significant disruption to business operations. So what does that mean? Right? Customer comes to the IT department and they say, hey, my laptop's infected with malware. You open your <laughs> incident response plan and you go, yeah, that's not significant. You, you close it and you wait. And then over the period of the morning, more and more staff come to the, the IT department. And they're like, hey, my machine's infected as well. It's my and then you're like working out. It's like, right, so we've got 100 employees and, and 10 of them have got malware. Is that significant? And they go, okay, now 20 of them have got malware. And at some point you start your, your incident response plan. It's obviously, I'm taking the extreme line here, but we do see this and it is important. Yeah. You know, uh, you have to cover those those um, smaller steps. Um, also, the, the thing that comes out from that, which is relevant to, to bring us back to, to broader policy, is define your terms. So so I say significant impact of business operations or, or words like that. It's like, what does significant mean? To bring us back to policy, I'll give you a good example. Vulnerability management policy, right? How mm. quickly must you install security updates? We see policies that'll say things like, oh, you can uh, install security updates during the workday if it's not expected to have a significant uh, disruption to services. What does that mean? What does significant mean? <laughs> like, if I knock a server over for an hour, is that a significant disruption? What if it's down for a day? What if it's down for a week? Like, where is the line? Your critical updates must be installed promptly. You get it a lot as well with, uh, you know, in the event of a security incident, you must report, you know, if you have lost your mobile phone, please report it promptly. What, if I'm on leave, do I wait until I come back or? Yeah. And the best one, wait, it gives a phone number to call if you've lost your work phone or like an <laughs> yeah, email look, if your laptop's stolen. <laughs> we we saw that one recently, didn't we, in the, the policies we've been working through together is um, <laughs> like, if you've lost your mobile phone, please call the following number. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's one of those things that were like, I think I mentioned at the start where you've got this policies like there, you have to have them, but you can functionally perform your job in security or IT by not reading them and just going off best practice and you got instinct. But yeah. the problem is these policies will then inform your procedure and your procedure informs your day to day. And you can end up at this risk of like hoisting yourself by your own petard when you've been sort of following what is best practice, but what isn't kind of within your role or even within your ownership because you've just been ignoring policies because policies are kind of dull, right? <laughs> I think uh, before we try and you know draw some recommendations out, I start talking about, obviously, like, it's very easy for us to say this policy is bad, that policy is bad. But before we start trying to draw out some, some of the good practices, um, one of the things that, that I, I see not infrequently is you go to an organization to do a pen test 
and they'll have some policy that says you know everybody who connects to the network must sign the you know end user agreement or whatever your organization calls it the it policy for, for accessing company resources and it says things like um you, know, you must not access other users user accounts you must not you know uh, try and guess passwords you must not introduce malicious software into the network and you're sitting there with like with your little pen tester hat on like do you know what i'm here to do <laughs> like this document they're asking me to sign is fundamentally incompatible with the reason that you're paying me to be here so i guess if we're gonna if we're gonna rant about policies what what is it that we're recommending from organizations well actually the, the recommendations are, are, are probably really simple right it's like write policies in a structure that makes sense to your organization and be aware that that structure might change over time if you're a small company having a information security policy that just contains everything might make sense but as the company grows that document might uh, be harder to maintain either because it just becomes unmanageably long or maybe uh, as roles separate the areas within that policy are owned by different people so it makes sense to separate them into to different documents document ownership is uh, a good way of working out when you should separate policies when you when you write policies r review them and i don't mean like that way that everybody does where it's like once a year we sit down and go well the company hasn't changed that much this year so the policy is probably all right yeah so just after the uh, annual pen test day we do the policy review day and then we don't have to address either of those problems for the next year. As everybody knows when you review a security policy, it's a week before your ISO 27000 recertification. <laughs> that is a whole aspect of the, the the policy for external reasons. Like we don't follow this policy internally. We, we've just been told that we have to have one by tenders or by some audit. We don't actually yeah. listen to it. We don't implement it. <laughs> it's just fair. You know, it's up to a company yeah. to decide their own risk appetite. And if that includes not reading policies, then that's fine. <laughs> Risk appetite, like that is that is the key word. And this is one of the hardest things to get across. And and I feel the pain for organizations where a low-level member of IT is the person who's been tasked with writing this policy. And then they have to get, you know, the IT manager to agree with them. And then there's some method for having that policy ratified within the organization. Uh, be it, you know, the IT manager just signs it off and that's good enough or that it's... Uh, in somehow nominally given to the board or however you structure the business leadership within the organization but it's like um you know we should consider policies as documents that are, are there to help the organization operate securely and efficiently and um one of the big things is like it takes us right back to the beginning of if you have a policy that is just like all of the musts and must nots it, it doesn't lend itself towards um the organization being agile and having a certain approach of like this is the preference. This is what we'd like. What I'm, what I'm trying to get into here, it's difficult to talk about in these kind of broad terms. But what I'm trying to get into here is, is what Michael says of the risk appetite, right? Defining these terms like what does promptly mean? When a security incident occurs, you must report it promptly. What does that mean? You know, um, patches can be installed if they don't cause a significant disruption to the organization. What does significant mean? Um, penetration testing policy or, or whatever policy you document the requirement for pen tests in might be in a vulnerability management policy or it might be in your information security policy those tend to say things like we perform penetration tests annually and on any major system change define major system change right like define your terms major system change is one that that i, I bring up uh, an awful lot because 
that's not how most organizations do things these days. You know, we're, we're more agile, uh, either agile in the software development sense or alternatively, uh, just agile as in, you know, we don't do one major project a year, but there's lots going on and a series of smaller changes could lead to a significant security impact. Uh, and it isn't necessarily a big change. Um, also, sometimes there's like nuance as to reasonable adults disagree. Um, if you change your firewall, is that a major change? And th th that might sound crazy to some people. And I imagine some people will immediately go, no. And some people will immediately go, yes. And that's kind of the point. If I go from, if I go from a, a Cisco to a Juniper or whatever, and those firewalls are configured in the same way with the same kind of rule base, the same things are allowed and the same things are blocked. Is that really a major change? I think it would be a sensible time to have a pen test because you might have screwed that up, but you know, that the, the architecture of the network hasn't changed in any meaningful way. Um, other people, you know, like I say, will immediately jump on that being like, yes, it's a major change because you could have messed it up, but people might disagree with those things. And that's the kind of time when you should be having those policies of this is what a major change is. And this is the why that leads into uh, the requirement for a pen test, if a pen test is even appropriate at that time. I'm sure there's like an, obviously a million and one examples we can give of sort of specific vagaries within policies. But another pet one for me is uh, vulnerability management. Coming from a pen test background, I think most pen testers are familiar with the, the idea of CBSS and the rating an issue. But I, I think we've spoken about this before, the difference between vulnerabilities and misconfigurations or missed hardening opportunities. Oh, right. Let me let me do those those two things for the audience then, for those who, who not come across. CVSS, Common Vulnerability Scoring System, grading a vulnerability effectively out of 10 based on its impact against confidentiality, integrity, and availability, taking into account things like access complexity, um, how difficult the issue is to exploit, whether the issue requires a degree of social engineering, those kinds of things. Uh, one scoring system that aims to take all vulnerabilities and give you an out of 10 how bad it is. Anyone who's worked with CVSS can give you examples of where it doesn't quite fit every vulnerability, but again, broad generalizations, systems that try and tie themselves to everything, you know, you, you, they're gonna, they're never gonna be perfect. So that, that's fine, but that's what CVSS is for those who've never heard it. The second thing, what Michael mentioned there is, the difference between um, vulnerabilities and, and hardening issues. Um, I use the term issue generically. A security issue is something that you might want to address because of security. Uh, and I have vulnerabilities and hardening aspects as the two categories there. A vulnerability would be something like um, a, a piece of software is vulnerable to cross-site scripting attack because it doesn't handle user input correctly. Those kinds of things. You know, you know what you mean by vulnerabilities? It's going to be a robust top 10, that kind of thing. Hardening is distinct from that. And you can have uh, hardening items that aren't inherently tied to a vulnerability. They often are, but not necessarily. If a machine doesn't have a host-based firewall, would you call that a vulnerability? I wouldn't, and the reason that I wouldn't is, just because that machine is not running a firewall does not mean it can be exploited. If it's also running no network services, then the fact that it doesn't have a firewall, it doesn't meaningfully impact security in the same degree as if it is running many network services. But it, we would still probably, as penetration testers, recommend that you enable those things. Uh, so we'd still want to report it, but we would likely report it as, as a hardening aspect. If your um, desktops don't automatically lock, uh, my laptop locks after five minutes of being unattended. 
if it doesn't do that, that isn't a vulnerability. You can't hack into that system because the, the system doesn't lock. But if I leave that machine unattended, then you might be able to do something to it. So as a hardening aspect, we should automatically lock systems. So yeah, I, in my head, my opinion, uh, uh, vaguely breaks security issues down into vulnerabilities and hardening. And I don't consider them where you have, you know, high impact, medium impact, low impact vulnerabilities. And then below that, there's everything in your pen test report that says like informational or stuff we're trying to cram in there that doesn't have the same kind of grading. I consider them as two separate things. Vulnerability should be addressed in their own right and hardening should be addressed in its own right. And it's so hard to see in policies, but you've got these concepts of like every pen tester, every web test you probably ever commission will have chaff in it, right? Like it will have these hardening steps and they're normally berated as like a low risk item, like security headers, cookie flags, stuff which isn't in and of itself an issue, a, a vulnerability, but still presents an issue that should be addressed, but it's generally low down the chopping block. This is, let me let me interject again, Michael, because um, in the last podcast we had um, Thomas Ballin on and um, Thomas was talking about this concept of uh, an attack chain. So when an organization is breached, breach isn't like a it's happened, it's not happened kind of like Boolean. It's not like you get breached and that's a mm. single action, but the attacker goes through several uh, actions uh, and we talked about these in the previous podcast where we'll do you know enumeration network mapping um compromising user account privilege escalation propagation all of those kinds of things and, and what thomas was trying to draw is this idea of an attack chain where there's several actions that the attacker takes before the organization is considered you know compromised to the degree that they are um you know if i steal a user account that's a bad thing but if i use that user account to then steal an admin account that's worse you wouldn't just address the admin account, you would go through all of the steps. So this links into what we're talking about here in terms of like, organizations might have vulnerabilities and yes, those vulnerabilities should be addressed, but you also should be trying to build systems in such a way that the exploitation itself is made more difficult, right? Yeah, because you want to, this kind of like reflects policies where you're not gonna eliminate a risk, but you can take steps to mitigate it or minimize it. And when, when you're adding all of these hurdles and all of these like uh, little hardening steps in, you're making it more annoying, more time consuming to compromise a machine. So when you've got a WAF in place, for example, if that's required by your policy, you suddenly said, well, actually, you know, common stuff won't work or shouldn't work. But you're not saying that your site is completely proof against all exploits. You just eliminated some of them. Yeah you've made people have to spend more time. So let's let's take a look at let's take a look at that um that risk aspect that you mentioned there. So you said risks can be mitigated. So so broadly speaking, um risks have several options, right? You can mitigate the the issue. So if there's a vulnerability, mitigation is likely apply the patch. Yeah. You can reduce the risk. That's likely um hardening the system against exploitation, either making it more difficult so that it's less likely or uh, making it so that the ultimate output of it being exploited is lower. You can offset the risk, which is uh, typically uh, ensuring against it. That would be an example of offsetting. Or you, you can accept that risk. So you have uh, mitigate, reduce, offset, accept as, as several actions. Very often when it comes to uh, risks or, or specifically vulnerabilities when we're talking to pen testers. Pen testers think like, the only thing you can do is, is uh, you know, address this vulnerability. It's the patch or it's nothing. And very often there's options. And also very often you do want to patch that vulnerability, but you probably want to do some other stuff as well. Yeah. Good example there might be 
uh, cross-site scripting. So not to get into the weeds of cross-site scripting, but uh, the fix for cross-site scripting, as you would see in most penetration testing reports, would be user input filtering, right? Filtering user input on the way in and coding it on the way out. That's handling user input in a more secure way. That is very, very often documented as the fix for cross-site scripting within a penetration test report. But what about things like content security policy? Content security policy is a technology built into web browsers that allows you to limit where scripts can be executed. Very often with content security policy, you can uh, effectively block the exploitation of the, of the cross-site scripting vulnerability. So that's a, a hardening aspect that you would also probably want to apply. So it isn't necessarily the case that like for every vulnerability, there is one fix. Very often there's like the fix of the vulnerability and then a series of hardening aspects that you'd want to get in as well. But let's take a take a step back and kind of try and try and summarize the last 38 minutes of us of us ranting about computers. What is it that we've been talking about? So policies are your policies are your friends. They 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 want to get to know you and they don't want to be hidden in a 300 page document by someone who really wanted to do a law degree. We knock them, but you shouldn't be scared of them. They are they're really helpful. They help you be more secure. Policies are critical documents that allow your organization to be agile whilst being secure. They should define things like the risk appetite for the organization. They should do that in as direct terms as possible. Don't say avoid significant disruption, report security incidents promptly, but try and be as specific as you can in those instances. Make sure that those policies cover all of the areas that your business operates in and may likely want to operate in in the future. If your organization doesn't have anything hosted in the cloud, you probably still should consider writing a cloud policy because at some point a project may consider the use of the cloud and they'll want to know what the organization's stance is on that. So you'll need a document for that. Things like um, bring your own device. Even if you don't do bring your own device, you should have a policy that covers how the organization feels about that, even if that's just we don't allow it. So that um, staff know where the rules are. Don't try and draw a rule for every aspect of the business where there is just one rule to rule them all we went a bit lord of the rings there um but allow for the fact that there are going to be exceptions and handle them in whatever way is appropriate for your business but the way that i would typically do it is the policy should mandate what works for most of the organization and where there is an exception document the exception you should document the exception so that you can review it uh, so that in the future, if that exception no longer applies because that server that blows up every time you give it an emoji has been decommissioned, you can remove that exception. Also review policies to make sure that they are coherent and you finish sentences. That's so common for us to see that. And also uh, dictate how policies should be reviewed, who reviews them at what frequency. Um, avoid terminology like this policy will be reviewed annually and in favor of terminology like this policy must be reviewed annually by person in certain role. There's the thing we haven't mentioned yet as well, uh, Michael, about like whether you refer to people by name or by role. So, yeah, I mean, there was a company I joined recently <laughs> where there was a, I was handed a sort of a, a large tranche of policies to review on joining. A, a lot of the a lot of the steps required me to report stuff either to a, my line manager or in most cases report to a, a person <laughs> so, uh, reviewing these policies i was like who is this person they seem to be quite influential they've written all of these policies all of the issues in the policies and all the incidents have to be reported to them who are they <laughs> only to find out that they 
they've not been at the company for quite some time. <laughs> yeah, re reasonable adults will disagree, but I would draw the line. As a safe default for most organizations, within policy documents, you should refer to the role, not the person. Uh, the reason for that is uh, when a person becomes unavailable, that their role will be deputized, right? So this might be that that person no longer works here, or it could be that that person's gone sick, they're on long-term leave, or whatever it is. The responsibilities of their role will be will be handed to someone else or, or, or several other people, so that it becomes easier for somebody who's following through this policy and the policy requires an action, you know, um, in the event of a security incident, tell Bill, well, Where's where's Bill? Who is he? How do I contact him? But if it if it's a, a role, that's much easier. And when Bill ultimately leaves the organization, there they will be replaced, no doubt. And and, and it, it allows for continuity between policies. And broadly against uh, aspects within policies being uh, referred to by people, with one exception, uh, when a policy is reviewed and ratified, that's the point at which you would you would put it on. So this you know this document has been approved by. I would do name and position. Um, but yeah, very often we, we do come across policies where it says, you know, speak to such and such person. This person is responsible for a thing and that, that person isn't there anymore. And as Michael alluded to earlier, sometimes that person hasn't been there for a very long time, which is another indicator to us doing policy review that they've not previously been reviewed within the organization. One of the things that uh, is easily overlooked within version control, uh, I'm not going to kind of dictate to organizations how they should do it, but I'll point out a common mistake. Um, very often organizations will um, draft a policy it will be reviewed or amended by several people and then someone will approve that policy so you'll have you know version 0 0.1 0 0.2 0 0.3 uh, 0 0.4 approved and then that policy will be modified in the future and those modifications aren't are presumably not by default approved so your sign-off process for the policy that the thing in the policy that marks it as approved needs to be clear which version was approved and if changes have been made um the fact that those changes aren't at this time yet haven't been ratified so the, the way that that i do that, that that i find um works well would be uh minor numbers are for amendments major numbers are for approved versions this works in most cases but i'll, I'll give you an example of where, where it's a little bit frustrating so 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3 are drafts, 1.0 approved, and then you would literally have, you know, approved by person, by role, on date, and the version which they approved. And then in the future, when you get to 1.1, it's very obvious that those amendments haven't yet been ratified. That works well with um, major policy changes. It doesn't work so well when you've got, like, um, typos being fixed and things like that. Of course, if you have a rigorous review process, typos shouldn't appear within policy documents, but we're all human, we'll make mistakes, things get messed up, I get that. So sometimes it can be frustrating where you have very, very minor changes uh, that, that need to go through a review process, but it should be very clear within policies which version is the active version and which one is a draft modified version. And then from that, it's when, when do your staff review these adapted versions? So when you've panicked and reviewed all of your policies and rewritten the whole thing just ahead of your ISO 27000 audit, are your staff requested to review it at the next available date? And again, getting into a crusade against soft language. So when you come up next year and you say, have all your staff read the policies and you say, you know, their, their attendance was requested. <laughs> it's not quite the same as saying yes. Yeah, we can definitely we can definitely get into that rant. Man, never thought I'd get this passionate about security policies, but we can definitely get into that rant in in the context of 
I think they're just, the thing, the reason I get so passionate about them is they're so commonly absolutely terrible. They are so commonly just fundamentally not fit for purpose. And they are important documents because they do tell the organization, the staff within the organization, how they should be operating. And within a policy, if you have very strong language, like failure to adhere to this policy can lead to disciplinary, including dismissal, which many policies include language like that. And I know the reason why they do include language like that. At least make sure the damn policy is coherent. If you're holding me and my job security to, you know, abiding by that policy. So I think that's the reason why I get, I get so passionate about this. Because they are. <laughs> yes, they're boring documents. Yes, I hate reading them. Yes, we've got a hundred of them. And not only do I have my own company's policies, but I've got to review all of these policies that customers ask us to review as well. And I, I, they're so long and boring and written by people who should have studied law instead of getting into IT because they seem to enjoy writing in that obfuscated way so frequently. Um, but but they are important documents. So it's one of those things as well. They they set so much of your direction because the policies sort of exist at the strategic layer, and then by the time it gets down to the password policies, and you're you're looking at your password construction guidelines or standard, and you're saying, well, why are we doing this? Why why is it limited to eight characters? It's yeah. because it's like if you've ever walked off into the woods with a compass and a map, and this idea that you'll be in like a pub by lunchtime, one degree of error at the start of your journey means you're about 10, 20 miles off by the end. Yeah. If you're getting these policies and you're, you're, it just consists of a list of must, 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 not, 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 should, 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 then by the time you get around to implementing the logging standard, the password standards, you're going to be way off the mark. Yeah, and, and the thing is, like, if you if you write policies poorly, um, which we see so frequently, they will restrict staff members and that will prevent them working, using modern technologies, working in agile ways and those kinds of things. If you don't have a policy that like talks about things like cloud, if you don't have a policy that talks about things like BYOD, people will presumably either just do it and say, well, there wasn't a policy that said I couldn't, or they will restrict themselves from taking those actions and, and taking those benefits uh, because they, they'll you know look at the policy and say, well, it doesn't seem that we're allowed to do this. Or if we are allowed to do this, you know, there's no clarity on how data should be managed within these environments, how these environments should be, should be built, talking about cloud there, that kind of thing. Um, so policies, whilst they're important to set the organization off in the right direction, I do think Michael's absolutely right by that. Um, if, there are, if they don't allow for organizations to be agile in this way and use these technologies in this way, they're restricting you. You're going to not fare as well as a business as you otherwise would have. Absolutely. I would say if your choice is we can have a complex policy that addresses everything or we can have a a relatively open policy with specific exceptions, I'd always lean towards the open direction. Because it's sort of like with the um, the NHS and WhatsApp, staff are like like any material that will just flow to the through the path of least resistance. Yeah. If it's a pain in the ass to manage your data, to send files in the organization, staff will just use WhatsApp or Dropbox because you're getting in the way of them doing their job. And it's it, if, it, if the choice is I can do my job, or I can waste time on security and do these, what I'm seeing as pointless steps. They'll just skip it because yeah. they need to achieve the goal. And your policy should be allowed for that. One last uh, one last thing you, you mentioned there as well was this idea that when you have policy changes, how are those policy changes communicated to, to staff? And um, I think a lot of organizations, and it's fair in some instances because handling policy changes is difficult and it only gets more difficult as the the organization scales but if you make a major change to a policy how do you how do you get that 
policy out to to all of the staff this comes up with the um the funny side for organizations that do do things like um review all of their policies a couple of days before their iso 27000 audit which we, we know many many organizations take that approach to security um one of the things that they're going to want to see your audit is going to want to see on whatever audit it is say it's iso 27000 they're going to see is like oh do you have evidence that all of your staff have read and agreed with this policy and if you just changed it and you don't have any mechanism for getting that out to to staff then then that might be um, awkward. The auditor might let you off on that because it was it was so close in in the dates. But it's something to think of. If we make a major change to a policy and it's significant to to our staff, how do we communicate that to staff? And if you just email a copy of it to everybody, that doesn't necessarily mean they read and understood it. And the and understood it part is is important, especially when it comes to things like security awareness, password policies, those kinds of things. It's very common within organizations that when, when we talk to them about these policies, as we mentioned earlier, they, they don't ever get feedback from staff about their understanding of, of those documents, those understanding of uh, not mm. only policies, but maybe security awareness training materials as well. Um, that's, in my opinion, always a negative thing. If nobody within the organization is ever asking you questions about what the policy means or what the training content means, that is a bad sign for them having actually read it. <laughs> Yeah, it, I mean, that's the point, really, isn't it? Like a policy at the end of the day should be people focused. It should be engaging people. And at the risk of sounding like a bit like a politician by just mindlessly repeating people, you, it's normal people should be able to understand this. It, it shouldn't be, it's not a computer you're programming. It's not a legal document that only lawyers will read. It should be something that's widely accepted in your organization. And if it helps you stave off the hydro of shadow IT or a successful compromise by an attacker then that's all the better but it should be something that at least everyone has a grasp on over something that's kind of just impenetrably worded yeah something something to consider as well and and you can handle this in different ways this isn't necessarily something that you would include in a policy some organizations break it down more granularly as as michael mentioned earlier having policies standards and guidelines um th there's reasons for that but uh, one of the things to consider is where you allow a staff member to make a good security decision that you don't mandate, that should be documented somewhere. I'll give you an example. There, there will presumably be a policy somewhere that says, you know, what the password requirements for your organization are. Minimum eight characters, must have uppers, must have lowers, must have numbers, whatever. I hate policies like that, but looks like we're running out of time, so we won't get into that rant. We'll have to have a part two. You'll have a password policy that says something like that. Am I as a staff member allowed to use a password manager? If the policy just says passwords must have minimum eight characters, must include uppers, lowers, and symbols, then that isn't clear to me. And it should be clear. Um, the organization should be making decisions on things like password managers. You know, As a penetration tester, I would, I would broadly be in favor of making them available to staff members, those kinds of things. But if your organization is taking a different path and they are not allowed to be used, then, then that should be documented as well. But if, uh, if you have security awareness training that mentions things like you should use a password manager, how do you tell staff that that's okay within, within policy? It could be that you document it within the policy. You must do these things. You may do these things. You may use a password manager. Um, and then also you should consider the actual implementation of the policy as well. Uh, so in terms of things like you may use a password manager, 
Um, which one? How do they gain access to it? How do we make this as streamlined as possible? You know, can we do things like uh, get an approved password manager and uh, build it into our, our gold image, the image that we distribute to uh, end user devices, those kinds of things. Some people will prefer a different approach where the policy is just the rules and there is a separate document such as perhaps a guideline that includes things like the UMES. That's cool. I'm not going to tell you how to to document those things it's whatever works your organization but i am going to say you should document those things have the you musts but also include the shoulds and mays where they are relevant to enable staff to make good security decisions and and go over and above wherever that's appropriate yeah so it's again it's that really you're setting out an aspirational minimum you're documenting the exceptions clearly but you're leaving direction for the way in which you can approve it again i think yeah Password policy is something which is a, a bit of a, a deep topic, a deep, insightful, exciting topic. Hey, genuinely, when 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 Michael and I had planned this podcast, there was two things that I wanted to get. I wanted to go on a really big rant about how password policies should be read, uh, how they should be written, and talk about things like the, the recent NIST and NCSE guidance. We haven't managed to do that, and we're 55 minutes in. And secondarily, I wanted to talk about how we lead from policies to implementation and look at things like taking a security policy and building that into good, secure configuration, taking a log management policy and building that into good log management. Um, but we are 55 minutes in, so I will I will cut it there if, if you're not going to be too offended, Michael. But what that means is we are going to have to have a part two. I didn't think this would happen. I didn't think I could get this passionate and ranty about security policies, but it has happened. It's gonna, I'm going to just leave you with uh, three words then before you close off the next time. And that's passwords, passcodes, and passphrases. <laughs> the holy trinity oh definitely that that's uh a little a little hint as to what we'll get into in in michael's part two and when we get around to that but um thanks everybody for listening apologies for getting so ranty about security policy but hopefully you take away from this uh, podcast that they're important documents and they require attention you have options as to how you implement them copying and pasting policy templates from the internet and, and presuming that's good enough for your organization is probably not going to work having one blanket policy for every aspect of your business allowing for no exceptions is probably not going to work treating a policy as an aspirational document as opposed to a list of rules where we aim to do these things is probably not going to work and um please review your policies because when we come in to do it as part of our security consultancy and, and vism service lines um if they are incoherent and include uh sentences that don't end um that, that's gonna be really frustrating but if you know the organization if you if you need help with these things we get it building good security from the ground up is very difficult building good security into an organization that has significant technical debt is very difficult if you had poorly managed security previously and you're trying to improve it if you're one of those organizations then you know we, we can do these things we'll get michael and i in we'll we'll review all of your policies and, and we'll, we'll sort them out for you but yeah michael thanks for uh thanks for for joining me on this this uh journey down the security policy rant thank you it's uh it's fun it it's one of those things it seems kind of dull at the surface but it's it is really exciting to look at your company's long-term plans and how they implement themselves in policies and it's not the kind of the domain only for people who have 15 of the same mug from ikea you know <laughs> it is exciting <laughs> yeah awesome so we'll we'll uh we'll arrange a part two and we'll get into uh once you've got good policies what to do next but um thank you michael for joining us and thanks everybody for listening
Thank you.